Is the church becoming irrelevant to the surrounding culture? David Kinneman is our guest this week discussing new research on ways the church should be shaping culture. It's all on episode 50 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Thanks for tuning in to episode 50 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host. And this week, our team is celebrating 50 episodes of the Church Leaders Podcast. We've had so many great shows and learned from so many great leaders, and we can't wait to show you what we have planned for our next 50 episodes. Today's podcast is sponsored in part by SermonCentral.com. Whether you're looking for professionally designed media or insights from sermons and text illustrations, Sermon Central has everything you need to deliver insights to your congregation. Visit SermonCentral.com forward slash freebies to download this week's free resource. Our guest this week is David Kinneman. David is the author of the best-selling books, Good Faith, You Lost Me, and Unchristian. He's the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company working with churches, nonprofits, and businesses. And David has directed interviews with nearly a million individuals and overseen hundreds of U.S. and global research studies. We talked to David about recent research that's come out on how the church can best influence the surrounding culture. And now, here's our conversation with David Kinneman. Dave, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you on the Church Leaders Podcast. Really looking forward to this, and uh, great to have you. Thanks. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Yeah, and could you share uh, with our, re- our listeners right now where you're podcasting from? Yeah, we're in Ventura, California, and uh, just right out the, the window here, I get a view of the Pacific Ocean, so it, uh, it's great to come into the, into the office every day. That is not too shabby, my friend. Not too shabby at all. <laughs> I've got a view out to a suburb of trees and nothing. So <laughs> I think you beat me by like a hundred times. So, um, but yeah, Hey, you've got a new book coming out. It's called good faith. And, uh, we're going to talk about that book and talk about church and culture today. And I think a lot of really valuable information for our pastors and leaders and volunteers who are listening to the church leaders podcast. And could you just give us a little overview of good faith? Like what spurred you on <laughs> to write the book and why you think it's really important? Yeah, sure. Uh, so thanks for asking the It's a collaboration with my good friend Gabe Lyons, and uh, Gabe and I did the book Unchristian nine years ago, and so it was uh, sort of us coming together again almost a decade later to try to look at perceptions of Christians in our culture today uh, based on a lot of new research. Actually, in both cases, Unchristian and then with Good Faith, we had um, uh, this sort of private research study, just one that we were doing kind of under the radar as friends working on different projects together. And so in both cases, we decided to bring it out as a book and to have a more, more public conversation about the findings. So with Good Faith, we were looking a lot at Christians in a more skeptical culture, the increasing hostility and perspectives of young people, also the broader culture that Christianity is either irrelevant at best or extreme, socially extreme. And when we say extreme, we mean that a lot of the core tenets of Christian belief and behavior are viewed as extremists. They're, they're viewed as bad for society. 42% of Americans think that people of faith are part of the problem. Um, and so that was really the basis of the project, kind of what spurred us on to write it. And then my friend Gabe Lyons asked me to do this. And it was really around uh, my own kids. And I have a 16 and a 15-year-old, two girls, and a, a boy who's 11. And um, just feeling like they're growing up in a culture that's things are changing. People are changing their mind about the Christian way of life. So we need to help them 
think about how to be faithful in this new skeptical context. Yeah, no, I think it's really, really important. And it's, we don't have to look far in our culture right now to know there are so many things going on in between church and culture and people of faith. And, uh, and just obviously, and then the political season right now is so heated and we can look at our social media streams and know that there's a kind of a disconnect. And um, so a lot of complex issues, and I hope to dig into those today, and I really appreciate it. And I appreciated the book, and we'll link to that in our show notes as well. I'd really encourage leaders to pick that book up and check it out. I think it's super valuable as we look ahead, and uh, I think responding to culture in very thoughtful ways, and as leaders, doing it as a model or people is so important. And uh, so thanks for writing it, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this idea of trying to understand our times you know, people don't change. Human nature doesn't change. God doesn't change. You know, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun in Ecclesiastes. Um, and that's all true. What we do have to understand is that there are new dimensions of how that gets expressed. So depending on what cultural context we're living in, the spirit of the age, understanding the times, uh, it, the idea of Issachar, understanding what's happening and then how to respond. That really fires me up. It's what drives me in our work. And uh, just as a researcher, as a leader, um, thinking about how, how church leaders can respond. Awesome. Yeah. So let's start with this. Why don't you give a kind of a big picture view of the research and findings and what, what is the current landscape? What does it look like today between church and culture? Well, I think one of the surprises for me, you know, I mean, obviously there's the data around the, the church viewed as irrelevant, uh, the church viewed as extremist. Those are the two kind of big beats that we're talking about. A lot of Christians are feeling misunderstood. They're feeling persecuted. They're feeling marginalized, sidelined. We have a whole set of data around how Christians are feeling. And one of the surprises for us was the fact that a lot of millennial Christians, practicing Christian millennials, um, are, are feeling many of those same tensions. In fact, they're feeling them even more acutely, uh, the, the notion of being afraid to speak up, that their faith feels sidelined. And so it really helps us understand the tension that a lot of Christians are feeling today. I think it also explains, frankly, why, you know, in our political environment, why Christians are sort of so up in arms. They're feeling like no one's speaking up for them. They're feeling like they need to be protected from, you know, the world out there and the change that seems to be coming. And anyone who can stand up to ISIS and anyone who can sort of, you know, stand up to a changing world. I mean, people are really working hard to tap into that deep-seated fear that I think a lot of Christians yeah. have. Now, we don't. We're careful not to use ourselves as authors of the book, the term persecution, that, that that's you know, knowing what our brothers and sisters around the world are going through, that that's not really the, the right term for Christianity and its expression here in our culture today. Um, are we feeling pressured? Are we feeling sidelined? Are there new questions about this you know, sort of a skeptical age? So that's part of what we, we saw was just the feeling that Christians are, are experiencing today, um, and then we try to dive into sort of why that is. Yeah. No, I think that's a huge factor. And I think there is a huge difference too between intolerance and persecution. And we see that today. So I think keeping that with a grain of salt of what we're going through is really important for sure. So let me ask you this too, as far as like where we're at now, how do you think we got here? What are some of the factors that got us to where we are today, where a lot of people look at you know, Christianity or people of faith as irrelevant or extremists? Well, I think... Um you know, the idea of irrelevance is really the notion that uh, Christianity doesn't matter in our culture. If you look at a lot of the systems and structures, both governmentally, socially, at public education, healthcare, a lot of the nonprofit work, service to the poor, um, a lot of our moral imagination has really been set by virtue of the Christian religion and Christian worldview. And so here's an interesting idea. We actually make the argument that Christianity has become so relevant and so much embedded in our culture that people don't notice. It's so relevant and has become irrelevant. And people think you can live a pretty good life without being a Christian. 
Um, and so I think the new dimension is that there's this idea that Christianity is extremist. And so, for example, if you were to, to say that you want to try to convert somebody to your, relig to your religion and to Christ, 60%, 60% of Americans think that's socially extreme. 52% say that if you hold to the historic uh, idea of, of um, a Christian sexual ethic, that, that same-sex relationships uh, are morally wrong, uh, that that's extremist, uh, 42% say that if you were to leave a good paying job and go serve as a missionary, that's sort of a type of social extremism because you might, you know, like, why would you be doing that? Um, if you pray for someone in public, a stranger, that's viewed as extremist. So there's a re really interesting thing. So the idea of extremism is that Christianity needs not to have power. You can practice your religion in your church and in private, but we don't want you to have any kind of public facing impact. And that really goes, falls, um, you know, on, on deaf ears among evangelicals. Because as evangelicals, as committed Christians, as Bible-oriented believers, we believe that our faith ought to be expressed in the public sphere. We think that our view of marriage and sexuality ought to influence society. We think that Jesus ought to be at the center of people's lives, even people who aren't Christians. So we, we keep coming into this sort of like tension because we're 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 banging up against a culture who says, listen, spirituality, awesome, religion, not so good. You know, if you keep your faith to yourself, it's fine but just don't bother us with this. Um, you know, the new moral rule is you shouldn't criticize someone else's life choices. You should let people live and let live. And that's a tough thing. It's a tough cultural environment for Christians to express their deeply held convictions and their devout belief in, in Jesus and his word. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And, and let me come back with this. What would you say to somebody who is reading the research and basically saying, hey, the perceptions of the world doesn't matter? To us because we're going to obey you know the scriptures and go forward and like you said scripture doesn't change god doesn't change um so we're not going to worry about the perceptions of people how would you respond to that well two things i mean first jesus uses all sorts of uh language in his uh teachings that says the world will see your love for one another and know that you're my disciples they'll uh, you know, let, let, let people see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Uh, you know, the unity you experience will, will show to the world, you know, s certain sorts of things. We're, we're actually held to account in a certain way by Jesus' own words to how the world perceives us. Now, he also says, and there are these incredible tensions in Scripture which we can't easily rectify. He also says the world will hate us and misunderstand us. and. Sure. You know, the, the, the degree to which we're cursed and, you know, on behalf of Jesus uh, sh shows some level of devotion and, and, you know, like we should expect it. So it's a both and. Um, I think we should realize that the world will never understand, uh, the systems of the world will never understand the ways of, of Jesus. And at the same time, we have a responsibility that our good works could motivate others to take a fresh look at what it means to follow Jesus. And again, to be super clear, we're never saved through our, our good works. We don't demonstrate um, any additional, you know, holiness by doing good good in the world, by paying attention to what other people think of us. Uh, but we also try to, again, it's one of these tensions in Scripture. We have a responsibility, I think, to show the world that these things matter. And, and then the final thing I would say about that is, um, you know, when you look through the pages of the New Testament, the most important thing, you know, we, we people who say we shouldn't worry about the world and what it perceives us are still concerned about saving the world. And that's what drives me. Like we are yeah. absolutely committed to, to Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples. Well, to go into all the world and make disciples, requires that you understand how it is that people are experiencing Christianity. How, and that's a, just a spirit-driven activity. That's like partnering 
with what God's Spirit is, is saying to us so that we can understand how to be a faithful church in that context. And I think so often in the Christian community, we try to change culture, we try to hold culture to account, we try to make sure that we're, you know, persuading people about the rightness of Christianity, when in fact I think the thing we should be most concerned about is the faithfulness of the church. And to that extent, it's exactly right, we, we don't need to worry about what the world perceives of us because we just need to worry about how it is that we can be most faithful to Jesus' call in our lives and in our communities and in our churches. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And I think it is so true. I mean, the perceptions of the world matters. You know, we don't want them to know us as jerks because we're jerks. We want them to know us as faithful people who follow God. And that's a different pathway into leading them and pointing them to the gospel. I think it's really important. There's so many places in uh, the New Testament. Paul, for example, is saying, you know, Colossians 4, 5, and 6, um, you know, let your conversation with outsiders be gracious and effective. And, you know, the graciousness, the posture is so important and effective. It's like what you say matters. Do you have to have confidence that these beliefs actually make a difference in people's lives? It's, you know, you can be gracious and not effective. You can be effective, but not gracious. Exactly. And so it's important. It's so important to be gracious and effective. And Paul, you know, at the same time, when we don't care what the world thinks. And Paul says, you know, the minds of the unbelievers are darkened to the truth of the gospel and all these very hard truths. At the same time, we have a, a huge responsibility to be faithful and to, to be gracious and effective and to be salt and light. Um, you know, the, the tensions of these things for us as Christians in a new culture and the skeptical culture that we live in are so important for us to, to manage, to fine tune, to ask the Spirit to be with us because we can't do it in our own power. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And it's one of those things where it's a... Yeah, in a relationship being led by the Spirit, because I think so many of us and you know, people of faith can get stuck in one or the other, where we're just kind of angered at sin, and then we're distancing ourselves from the people that we're supposed to reach, or we're not, you know, I mean, overlooking everything else and kind of ex- too accepting so that we can get there to reach them, but then it's too watered down at that point, too. So I think there's that tension point of, like, how do we become effective, care deeply, understand, but all for the purpose of loving people in the ways of Jesus and reaching them. So it's really good. Well, and what, one of the things that we find in this research that I think is maybe most important for church leaders, uh, there's, there's four or five or six big findings from this study. I mean, the irrelevance and extremism, some of the fact that Christians are feeling so much tension and frankly just realizing as pastors how much fear and concerns that they have and how it is that we have to be very careful. As Scripture is saying, you know, we don't have a spirit of fear but a spirit of love, uh, power, and sound mind. And so you as pastors have to help dial down the fear factor for people um, and build instead a godly love for the world. Um, it doesn't mean we're, we love the world for what it is, but we love, we lead with our love. We, you know, love always wins. It's always through love that we're able to, um, you know, that God's kindness leads us to repentance as it, as it describes in Romans 2. So it's very important that one of the, one of the key things that we learned in the research was the fact that there's these difficult conversations, the fact that evangelical Christians actually have the highest, some of the highest levels of conversational baggage of Hmm. any faith group. And what we asked was, with what groups do you think it would be difficult for you to have a natural and normal conversation? And then we asked all different groups about a set of sort of minority groups. So evangelicals, Jewish individuals, the LGBT community, atheists and agnostics, Muslims, Mormons. And we find that all all those groups represent 10% or fewer of the U.S. population, so they're all kind of small segments to the population. And we're kind of – we're trying to figure out how are we both united and divided as these different tribes. And evangelicals are some of the groups – the group that actually has some of the highest levels of – I would actually really struggle to have a a meaningful conversation with somebody who's a member of the LGBT community. I would struggle to have a conversation with an atheist. 
And and I think that, I mean, what an awesome opportunity as faith leaders, what a tremendous indictment for us as Christians, because it's telling us that the very heart of the gospel, I mean, Jesus interacts with so many different people. Are, are, you see in Acts, uh, the apostles doing difficult conversations in so many different settings around the truth of the gospel and what it means to be a, a Christ follower in those early days of the church. <clears throat> and same deal, I think we have a high responsibility to be conversational evangelists, to have difficult conversations, to have natural and normal and meaningful conversations with people who are different from us. And that means we're not going to just sit down and say, let me, I'm going to talk you into this perspective. I'm going to make, by the 15 minutes, you're going to be able to agree with me. It means we have to have really deep friendships for the sake of expressing our conviction, for the sake of being there for those people who are different from us, who haven't maybe yet seen uh, the power of Jesus in their lives. No, I think that's that's incredibly powerful. And I think even during this time, like I said, again, with the political season, there's so much fear, even within the church that is going on. And I think the posture of leaders to be one of confidence and compassion is critical. And then even building those relationships, like you're saying, I mean, if a leader, if one of us as a pastor or a leader, you know, builds a friendship and a bridge with somebody from the LGBT community, and are, are people able to see that and not be afraid of it and understand that? I think that speaks um, incredible amounts um, into what the gospel looks like and people of faith as they live it out. Well, and one of the things we part of the reason for working on this project between Gabe and, Gabe and me was the fact that we felt like a lot of millennials were losing confidence in the fact that Christianity has something meaningful to say, particularly on the LGBT community, uh, questions of, of same-sex attraction and how to address questions that are coming from the LGBT community. And, and so we wrote the book along a lot of lines to give people you know, the ability to love at great cost to themselves, to have confidence in their beliefs, to try to live that out. So we really, we talk in the book about this love, believe, live sort of equation. What like it's, it's, it's a really simple but profound idea of how it is that we, we need to love people. That's the preeminent virtue in the Christian faith. We, we love others at, at personal cost. We see the Imago Dei in their, in their lives, the fact that they're created in God's image, but that beliefs matter and that our convictions matter and that orthodoxy matters in the world, that theology is sort of the baseline for how we view and talk about these things. And we, we see that there's like a, a lot of older believers that are really good at the believe part, but not so good at the love part, and maybe not so good sometimes at the living it out. We think a lot of millennial Christians, because they're feeling so much pressure and we're living in a world where there's a lot of fake tolerance, where we, like, we want to love everybody, we don't want to criticize anyone. So the consequence of that is that a lot of millennial Christians are really good at the love part, but don't have a lot of confidence in, in their convictions that, that you know, what they believe doesn't make them an extreme and irrelevant person. Um, and, and maybe at the same time, we'd also say that being irrelevant and extreme is okay. Like there are times when God calls us to be irrelevant and extreme, just like sure. Daniel. And so we're trying to help, you know, teach into, to, um, you know, look at this research, teach into the Christian community. And the last two weeks, we were actually on a 20 city tour related to the book. And we were so amazed at the number of young millennials and parents and grandparents who were coming up and just saying, you know, we actually really want to talk about these difficult things. We, we need a way to, to think about them. You know, uh, in a lot of cases, pastors are sort of struggling uh, to really articulate how to think about this because, you know, you might get an angry email, you might lose some people. It's a really difficult 
context to be a spiritual leader, and we acknowledge that. Um, and we're just seeing how hungry people are for these kinds of more, you know, a safe place for a deeper conversation about these topics. Yeah, I think that's critical for leaders to start talking about those issues with their people. And uh, we've ran a, an article a while, just maybe a week ago, about Carl Lentz coming out and talking about Hillsong being kind of a welcoming church to LGBT people, but not affirming. And I think like between those two, I mean, there's so much tension, you know what I mean? And that's where it kind of lies where, again, like younger millennials might be more accepting and yet, you know I mean, maybe slide into the affirming at times, whereas older believers are like, no, we're not going to welcome or affirm. And so I think the, the conversation has to happen yeah. within leaders of the church to go, how are we approaching that? And what does this look like? And, uh, and we get emails and articles sent in and obviously the, the conversation um, with the canvas of our site you know I mean deals with that too and there's just so many people on, on all parts of the spectrum but I think a lot of it deals with like you said they we're afraid to talk about it because either we're afraid of how we'll be perceived or that we'll lose someone or that people will think we're slipping from the faith if we talk about welcoming and loving people of all kinds and it's and, and I think it's really hard for a church to become a welcoming church if it's not from the top down. I mean, if somebody, if their people are used to talking in a certain way about LGBT people, when somebody like that walks in their church, they all of a sudden can't turn a switch to say, oh, now you're a friend, not foe. Uh, And so I think there's so many just interesting complexities with that. But I think the critical nature comes down to going, knowing what you believe, knowing what's how your church is going to live that out and being clear and communicating that, having the conversation with all generations about that. And I think that's critically important. I would say it's one of the most important takeaways. And, and even I would encourage, as I said before, leaders to read your book. I think that section that you talk about that is really important. And I would even lay it out as our leaders that your view on homosexuality is conservative, biblically, as you state in the book, that you don't believe, yeah. you know I mean, same-sex relationships are adhering to the biblical model. as, But yet, so we're building from that platform to go like, here's what we believe. We're starting at that point. Now we're going out to say, how do we engage culture with this? Because the conversation that we've had previously is not answering the question. And it's like you said, too heavy on belief, maybe not enough heavy on love and action um, for some of the older believers. And again, with millennials, maybe a little bit more accepting with that tension of like, don't be intolerant. And talking about those tension points, I think is incredibly critical. Yeah. One of the major issues that we take on in the book is this notion of how the church can uh, deal with questions of sex and sexuality. We think this is one of the biggest presenting issues around questions of extremism and the irrelevance of faith. The millennials think, listen, if your faith doesn't have anything to say that is affirming to people of same-sex attraction, then it probably can't be meaningful. And in fact, the idea of extremism is essentially that you're extremists to hold to beliefs about sexuality that are contrary to today's sort of popular notions. So we really try to take a long look at this. And I would like to tell you a little bit about the story, what we did with this, which was, you know, Gabe and I, Gabe, first of all, Gabe Lyons of Q has a tremendous number of relationships and friendships. He's made and cultivated a lot of good friends, uh, leaders within the LGBT community. Uh, And so he's actually been working for a long time and developing a lot of deep friendships um, across a wide range of perspectives on this issue. Um, same deal with me. I've done a lot of research on this issue. In fact, nine years ago, we kind of felt when we did Unchristian, you know, the top perception was that the church was anti-homosexual. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, we wanted to, to take a fresh look at this being almost a decade on. We felt like we had some moral authority to talk about same-sex attraction, having raised the question for the church via the research nine years ago. So we actually took a, a you know a lot. We read a ton of books. We've talked to a ton of people. We've interviewed pastors and leaders and Americans. And there's several things that are I think important just to kind of highlight for your listeners. First, the idea that people are changing their mind. Yes, the culture has changed their mind 
broadly, but a lot of evangelicals, 93% of Protestant pastors say that the church should hold to its historic teaching. Uh, the vast majority of Catholic leaders believe that that's the case. Our culture is increasingly perceiving it as bigotry, that it's not just, you know, like, hold your, this is the idea, like, you can hold, just hold your views, but just hold them in the church. They're, no, they're actually saying, if you believe this about sex and sexuality, if you don't agree with what we're saying about freedom, um, then then you're actually a bad person and you need to be, you know, you need to not have those views anymore. And so what we did was went through a lot of process to come and, you know, decide how we could help the church deal with this question. We opened, we, we came with a lot of actual honesty, like, you know, maybe we are wrong about this, but the, the vast preponderance of the evidence, the interviews that we did, the conversations with leaders, the books that we read, just our own thinking and, you know, kind of the congregations that we're a part of, it was like, no, we really just, we just don't feel like this, it's so interesting because it was like, well, why would we take, in nine years, why would we have changed our point of view on this just because the world has changed its view so rapidly? So number one, we found that most Christians, most practicing Christians, most evangelicals, in fact, 52% of all Americans believe that marriage should be between a, a covenant between a man and a woman. Uh, so slim majority of Americans still believe in the traditional view of marriage. You wouldn't think that if you just kind of see what's on uh, the news today or, you know, the, the, the way the polling is typically reported, it's like 80% of Americans believe that same-sex marriage is, is is the way to go. Again, we say all this with great humility because we're just trying to help explain and explore exactly. this particular topic. But, but we try to really reassure people that, you know, not as many people have changed their mind on this, certainly not people of biblical conviction, as many people have changed their mind. I know that there are some people who are very committed Christians who would disagree with this, but we're we're really trying to explore. That's not as many people as you would imagine. And then we also went through and said, you know, if you look at the trajectory of Scripture, you know, the idea of being on the wrong side of history, like Christians have been on the wrong side of gender and the wrong side of race, and, you know, we've used Scripture inappropriately to justify those wrong positions, so we're probably just doing that again on the issue of same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the argument that we make in, in the book is that it's the, the, the Bible is actually quite liberal in its approach. It offers freedom in terms of gender. It offers freedom in terms of, of ethnicity, uh, but but that it's quite clear throughout Scripture, and it gets even more clear in the New Testament that it's not even just a matter of of um, you know the rules and regulations, but Jesus even reframes it as a matter of our minds, our hearts. And so, um, for a lot of reasons, we we felt like the scriptural argument isn't being made. We also broaden the argument and say, listen, the issue isn't just about same-sex attraction; it's around all of singleness, all of sex outside of marriage pornography, uh, millennials living together, or any other generation, divorce, questions of sexual fantasies. We live in a very sexualized culture. And, and the answer for all this, we, we argue, is that Christian households, Christian community, is the place where refugees of the sexual revolution, a phrase that Russell Moore uses. So we've got this massive number of human beings in our culture and around the world who are very broken in terms of the impact of sex and sexuality on their lives. Listen, we're all broken sexually. They were all intrinsically disordered in some way, but we also have the Imago Dei in us, and so we're, we're, sex is a good part of God's creation. Um, but we believe that a huge preponderance of people, especially millennials, are living in sort of the, the watershed, the aftermath of the sexual revolution. And so how do we respond to that? The strength and commitment of the grace and truth of the Christian community can help us deal with pornography, can help us think through questions of, of intimacy, um, the difference between sex and intimacy, 
uh, sort of deal with and, and wrestle with questions of same-sex attraction and, and how it is that we can provide true friendship and spiritual friendships to people who are who are feeling same-sex attracted. Um, and same thing for men and women who are single and called to be celibate and or and or who just have never had the chance to be married. You know, how is it that the church offers a relational network that is stronger than, is equal to the challenges of a, of a generation that is just absolutely ab- obliterated in terms of their sex and sexual orientation, questions of sex and sexuality. Yeah. So that was, um, that's a long answer, but it's, um, it's something we're really passionate about. And what I'm trying to sort of re- reflect is that the book is a culmination of several years of research, of thinking, of conversations, of difficult conversations we've been having, of trying to understand how it is that the the church can be faithful. And it turns out it's not a five-minute YouTube video um, that that these kinds of questions, that we need a richer, fuller, more robust theology so that the church can can be a true counterculture on these questions. And that it turns out you can't just watch a YouTube video and like, oh, wow, I think I was wrong about all this. It's something we have to we have to deeply think through. And and that, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of persuasion and has to be equally persuaded of the the reasons why this this matters and you know it's not the only and important issue it's but it becomes a very important issue within this culture of skepticism and whether the church is simply irrelevant and extreme yeah no i love that answer and i think the aspect of building our theology you know to come down through that is so important like you said it's not a matter of a quick five tip youtube video on how to you know, i mean relate to the world but it's a deep seated um, kind of a rich process of making sure that our theology filters through that so that we can engage these issues with confidence in God's word as we go through that too. And not just with quick fixes or with changes or with trying to be, I mean, cool in culture again, that's not even close to what we're looking at or talking about. And I think it's really important, the aspect that you talked about, the perception of believers adhering to, I mean, biblical convictions when it comes to sexuality is really important. Because I do feel like there is that sense, like you said, in the media where we're being convinced otherwise. And to know that and, and to understand that is a really, I think, a, a critical point in the conversation. Yeah, and I think part of our motivation was to take a look at social science, to take a look at some theological you know, perspectives, uh, to try to reflect a lot of the conversations that we're having. Again, this is the presenting issue of our day, is the, que- you know, the first question you're asked is, what do you think about homosexuality? It's not the, we talk about disability and life and families and uh, race, race. And, you know, to just a tons of issues that are part of what it means to live as a good faith Christian today. And, and one of those key areas is understanding sort of a richer theology of sex and sexuality, which leads into all these other very important discussions. And again, I say all that with a great deal of humility that I know people will, will come to different points of view that, that the Christian community is not y- unanimous about these topics, sure. that you know, a good, healthy church is going to debate and discuss these things. However, having said that, we came away that with thinking from this project, like it is more important than ever that we understand that these convictions matter and that it isn't just like, well, if you want to be affirming, go for it because that's going to be great. Uh, and if you want to be hold a biblical conviction, go for it because that's going to be great. It actually turns out that the way our culture is going, the, the Christian community is now con- increasingly sidelined. We're going to face a lot of pressure as church leaders, as Bible colleges and universities, Christian educators, you know, let's not be um, ignorant of the implications of religious freedom and freedom of conscience that, that a lot of people who, who are not believers, who are not Christians, 
would say that all of that is bigotry. In fact, all of these public expressions of, of faith, praying for people in public, you know, trying to trying to be evangelistic, doing things like inviting people to Easter services, all that's a little weird. And so we shouldn't allow that in our culture. And I just want to like remind leaders that these are pretty urgent questions that we address um, because uh, you know it's part of who we're you know committed to being as Christians in, in the world. Um, so it's a it's an incredible opportunity. The last thing maybe to, to remind us is that um, cultures that are like ours, incredibly skeptical, uh, this sort of inherent distrust of religion and institutions, spiritual hungering. Um, there's a real opportunity for revival to. Uh, uh, happen and and that happens when we as God's people are revived when we're committed again to the truth of Scripture, and so we actually gave and I are in incredibly hopeful that this time of pressure could turn into a period of of a revived church for a renewed culture. And so I think you know there's a lot of talk through the ages of, about you know revival and prayers for that. And sometimes in my you know cynical moments, I'm like, well, you know that that's all interesting. But I actually really believe this from the social research that we could see a re very revived church as the the Spirit leads us to respond with, in repentance and um, renewed commitment to Scripture and renewed uh, trust in the Spirit's work, work in our lives and through us in the world. Um, so it's a pretty hopeful thing, even as we face a pretty challenging set of, of uh, circumstances socially today. No, I agree. And and I love that perspective and do think that during this time of pressure, it could lead us to revival as well. And we have that conversation often to think through the marginalization of the church today and what that means. And some of us are, you know, there's, a, like you said, a kind of a, a an attitude of fear, but there's also a sense <clears throat> of like throughout scripture, God has used the church on the margins to do incredible things. And sometimes it's not the church in the front leading that actually takes the front and, and gets a lot of accomplished, but what God does with a small and on the margin. So I, I love that. And I would love to kind of wrap up with just one last question. Um, speaking directly to maybe a young leader or young pastor who's maybe in his first or second year of ministry, how would you say uh, like it's critical for them to approach these issues or any kind of applications or directions or encouragements you would give them in thinking through how to make sure they're moving in the right direction um, when it comes to church and culture? Yeah, uh, great, great question. I mean, number one, uh, we find that the most important correlation to building strong believers uh, as you're discipling people is their beliefs about and engagement with Scripture. So the most important thing we would tell you is make sure that you um, uh, re revere God's Word. And, and again, we want to be careful not to create, you know, sort of an idolatry of the Bible. God is revealed through Scripture. It's Jesus that we worship as revealed through Scripture. Uh, but a trust that Ecclesiastes matters for a generation that wants to be ambitious, that Song of Songs and that other portions of the Scriptures matter, that we're not using Scripture just as a whack-a-mole. So, you know, someone comes up and is like, well, I don't believe in this. And it's like, bang, there's, you know, uh, Leviticus such and such. <laughs> and and so, you know, really understanding a rich theology of how we understand and engage Scriptures is, is so critical in, in your work. Um, we're seeing actually in Scotland that the churches that are growing in a very post-Christian context are actually being very intentional about uh, expository teaching, Bible teaching, they're very they're very focused on you know digging into the word, longer sermons, expository in nature. So number one, scripture. Number two, um, just making friends across a lot a lot of different um, groups. Um, you know, how can we be friends with atheists and agnostics and true friends? You know, for them, yeah. in, into into who they are. Uh, you know, how can we have friends in the LGBT community where this isn't just like a 
you know, some issue to be solved, but there are people to be loved. As a good friend of ours, Preston Sprinkle, um, has a new book talking about that, people to be loved. And it's not just an issue to be solved, but there are people. So when we talk about the Muslim question and immigration, we're not just talking about, you know, issues. We're talking about real people who are affected by that because that's the work of the church. It's not we're, The church is not the state. We're not in charge of policies and procedures. We're to be people of, of love and conviction in the world. So um, scripture, making friends across a diverse group of people. And number three, prayer. Um, we see in our work that um, to be people of prayer, making prayer a mission and praying missionally is a critical component of being effective in a post-Christian context. And why not? Uh, it's not our smart strategies that are going to save the world. It's God's power through us. Um, it's God's work in the world that really, you know, he, he's constantly at work to redeem creation and to redeem souls. Um, and so we see that, in again, in Scotland, we found that people, the ch churches that are growing the most significantly, say they pray for the reality of being in a post-Christian context. And what's so powerful about that is that there is an awareness that they are in a new context. They're in a, Jeremiah 29 says, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. And for me, connecting that section of scripture, like prayer is important throughout scripture, but prayer when you're in exile is a certain type of missional activity. It's making prayer a mission and praying missionally. And so I think that effective leaders today need to be very, you know, walking the streets, praying, you know, uh, more than ever. Um, and it's changed the way I've been leading, frankly, even our business at Barna, because I'm praying for our projects. I'm praying for our team. I'm praying missionally for our work in, the, in as we do mainstream media and you know interviews with the Associated Press or uh, you know various outlets. Like God, like use me. Pray for the peace and prosperity of the news outlets where you've sent where you're sending me. And so that's one of the key things that that we're we're seeing in the research. And you know, again, uh, you don't need a researcher to prove the, the power of prayer. Amen to that. And that's uh, fantastic, very practical and rich insights for sure. I think those are great things for young leaders to grab onto. And it reminds me of the uh, study, The Gospel and Life by Tim Keller. I don't know if mm. you've checked that out, but it's a powerful one about engaging, um, you know, I mean, kind of being exiles in Babylon and what it looks like to really engage for the good of the people um, and to live out our faith. So just a resource to plug there too that I think is helpful. But totally appreciate the time that you've given, David, and uh, rich, rich insights. And I know that our readers and listeners are going to really benefit from it too. So thanks for carving out the time and for the work you do. And uh, we pray that God continues to bless it. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Brian. And uh, thanks for checking out the, the book, you know, Good Faith. And we poured our heart and soul into it. And as I said, you know, as a dad, you know, my, my, my girls have been reading it and asking me questions, and that's been a lot of that's been really fun, you know, because these difficult conversations, like again, it's not just like some abstract set of ideas. It's like, how do we live this out in a public school? How do we think about this as a family who's trying to be faithful, you know, when our neighbors are, you know, uh, incredibly skeptical of our of our faith? And so, you know, being a researcher, being a president of Barn is one thing, but being a a person of Jesus in our neighborhood today is is where the rubber meets the road. So it's been fun trying to work some of this stuff out, even for myself. That's excellent. Excellent stuff. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. That's not just about leaders, but about families, about communities, about neighborhoods and uh, what God wants to do through us in that. So great stuff again. And uh, yeah, take care, David. Hope to have you on again sometime too. So appreciate okay, it. Sounds Anytime. Right. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks to David Kinneman for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it really helps us if you take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes and consider sending this episode someone who you know that might benefit from listening to it. Also, make sure to download the show notes of this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. The show notes always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. 
As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve the show or guests that you'd love to hear us talk to, email me directly at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.